The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. A catastrophic event that struck the Snowbird family, and it came on June the 9th of 2007 that uh, four of our interns were killed in an automobile accident. And it was, and two more were in intensive care. And, and for me, as a, as a one of those seasons I'll never forget because it's such a formative season for me because my dad died that year who I'd had at, at best a very strained and stressed relationship with and, and God was working some rec- reconciliation and then he died at a pretty young age, his mid-50s, but just lived really hard. And, um, and then we lost a baby, little and I lost a baby and then my closest friend, to this day the only man in the history of ministry for me and in my life that gets me like we were wired the same you know like he's that one dude that I feel like if I was thinking something he was thinking it usually if I'm thinking something people think I'm weird like you know like uh I've learned don't say that out loud you know this guy he got it and uh and he was a year older than me left behind a wife and a kid and died had an aneurysm I think something a blood clot go into his heart something like that and died that was on June 2nd, the only day of camp I've ever missed. I drove, uh, a group of us rode to Raleigh to go to his uh, funeral. And on Tuesday of week two of camp, came back, and on Saturday that accident happened. And in all of those events, Amy and Little did that song. And so it's sort of, you know, music is such a powerful thing. And, um, but it's such a message of hope in that song. I'm going to try to be short-winded this morning and, uh, and give you a message of hope. And I want to look at the life of Rahab. There's, uh, I haven't done, I don't think in, in the times that I've spoken at the Respond Conference, I don't think I've done a message on uh, like a biographical look at a woman in Scripture. I've been a little bit scared to do that because I felt like it was a little bit boxed, like that's what you expect. Like, oh, you're, doing a, you're speaking at a women's thing, talk about one of the ladies in Scripture. And I, and I felt like, I, I wanted to wrestle through that, and I feel like this is where the Lord's landed us. Um, and, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, it's a story that to feel the elevation of hope and glory that we see, the, the joy and the glory that comes out of this story, we have to first sink in our imaginations and in our emotions to the depth of brokenness that Rahab feels. And many of you can identify with that more naturally because you've been on a life journey that, that it, it has been wrought with brokenness. Maybe it was childhood abuse. Maybe it was uh, a, a wrecked first marriage or second marriage. Maybe it was a cycle of broken relationships that started with a daddy wound. And, and so many of us feel the weight of our own brokenness, but many of you feel the weight of your own brokenness and your brokenness at the hands of others who may have done damage to you. And so there's a lot to learn from Rahab. I was thinking this morning, well, how am I going to intro? What, am I, what joke am I going to tell? How do you be funny, you know? And, uh, and then Amy told me they're doing that song, or Little told me they're doing that song. I was like, eh, no jokes, you know? Um, but, but, uh, it was, but it was funny this week because, you know, just thinking, you can't help, as a man speaking at a women's conference, you can't help but think about the different levels of, you know, different ways to communicate between men and women and uh, you know, sometimes I'm communicating to middle schoolers, and sometimes I'm, you know, I'm speaking in church. Last Sunday, I was, in, I was at uh, Schindler. We had some ladies here from that church, and that 8 o'clock service is predominantly senior adults, 
and then and it's more traditional and then that 11 o'clock or 10 30 service is uh you know different crowd and so figuring out i think it's important to figure out how to communicate the same truth in the context of the crowd you're listening to and i walked in this morning little had all week um at once a day this week she texted me make sure they get the building warm make sure they get the building warm <laughs> you know and i'm like oh yeah this is our this is our life you know i would like to i would like to blow up our heat you know our heating system and live as eskimos you know and and she has the circulation of a 117 year old woman you know like <laughs> she's cold it's summertime she's wearing a puffy jacket and and so we got this and i just run hot all the time so it's like this and some of you i know that's a lot of y'all that's your probably the same battle you fight at home and so, I, and so I'm like, I promise, I promise we'll have that room warm. I walked in this morning, felt like I stepped onto the equator. I thought, I'm going to die and stroke out before I ever get up there. Um, but, and, the, uh, and then she turns to me and says, we got to get started. It's almost 10. And I was like, uh, I'm not in charge. <laughs> like, like, I was supposed to start at 930. I'm not in charge, but I'll keep it short, you know. And so, um, but here's, as we go into this story, and I'm, I really am going to do high level, and we're going to, do, we're going to keep it brief, because um, we could spend the whole weekend looking at Rahab's story. As we go into this story, uh, something came to my mind as I was preparing for, for this, this morning, and it was about a year ago, and Kilby was home, and Kilby, and Little, and Laylee, and Juliet, and I think a couple of other snowbird ladies are in our family room and they're having they're they're watching a movie they're I, I can see the lights are off and the, they're watching a movie and I go in and everybody's crying uh, squalling bawling they're watching this tv show that you guys probably are in love with called this is us and she said I'm like what are y'all doing little said it's so great you gotta watch this I'm like no thank you <laughs> like, like if this is if this is what happens I'm gonna go do something happy you know like <laughs> and but there's something, here's what I've learned, like, like when dudes get together to watch a movie, we want to watch something epic where somebody dies and stuff blows up, and, and at the end of the day, the good guys are standing, and, but there's something in the heart of a woman that is by, by nature in the fall in tune with suffering and hurt and brokenness, and I think it's important because we, we kind of make, we, we make jokes about it, but I think it's important to press into that and recognize that all the way back to the garden, our first mother was face-to-face -face with suffering and calamity, and it's been that way ever since, and there's something that we identify with the brokenness of someone's story, and Rahab, I think, is a story that we can study that resonates with us, so let's dive in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something I don't typically do. I'm going to read a lengthy um, passage. I'm going to read from uh, Joshua chapter 2. That's where this story takes place. And I'm just going to read, think of, think of just sitting, I mean, follow along if you want to, but just listen to the Word of God. Just, just, we're not, don't go into listen to the sermon mode. Go into sit before the Lord and listen to the Scripture being read. The story is captivating and it's beautiful. It's captivating. It's a story of tragedy and suffering and calamity, which means it's a story of redemption and hope and glory. And, and if we didn't comment on the story with a message, the story alone gives us all of that if we have ears to hear. So let's listen. This is Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Acacia Grove as spies, saying, Give view, go view the land, especially Jericho. 
And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all of the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of the Lord has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were before or beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on your head, on his own head, and he will be guiltless. We shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you give us insight into the hearing and reading of your word and that we would be changed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the background of the story is fascinating because um, this city of Jericho is in such uh, uh, it's, it's such a unique um, place in, in terms of history and all that had happened there. But I, wanna, I, I want us to, to try to go there in our imaginations, try to put yourself in that moment. And for a lot of us, these very familiar Bible stories, we tend to have formed pictures or maybe, maybe your pictures have been informed by 
anything from a, a picture Bible as a child to something as goofy as VeggieTales, you know, and you got those little guys lobbing Slurpees over the wall, and it's, and it's, and it's really bad Bible, by the way. It's really not the way things went down. Uh, what you've got is a city paralyzed with fear, and they've locked themselves inside because this massive war machine is marching across the plains coming at their city. So, so the Israelites... Are, are, have, have struck God through the Israelites, has struck fear into the hearts of those people in the city of Jericho. Well, here's what we know about Rahab and her identity. She's a Gentile, so she's not, a, she's not Jewish or Israelite, and I think that's very important when we get to the end of the story. She's a Gentile, so she is not someone who is brought into by birth the Christian faith or God's chosen people. She's not only a Gentile, but she's an Amorite. So if you can imagine socially degrading steps. So we start here, she's a Gentile. Then she is an Amorite, which these were a barbaric, and, and, and these were people who practiced sex trafficking. They enslaved others. They were barbaric in their actions. They were a horrific people from what we can study archaeologically and historically. And then among the, 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 what we might call the filthiest of people, she's a prostitute. So she's Gentile, she's Amorite, she's prostitute. So you get a good glimpse of what her identity is. So what does she bring to the table in the story? What does she offer to God? What does, she, why, what does she bring to the Lord if that's her identity? See, there's this, I think there's a mind, there's, there's a misconception about this story, and it is these two spies go into the land. Typically, the reason you would send spies into another land would be to scout it out and see, okay, can we take it? How, how strong is their military? What are their food provisions? Should we siege the city and starve them out, or should we attack? But we know how the, we know how the city falls. Do you know how the city falls? They send the marching band to stomp around the city for a few days, and then everything falls in and it's over. Did God really need spies to go gather intel and collect information so that the army could formulate a plan? No, I would say that in the context of this story, the spy's mission is the salvation of this broken prostitute. That's the only reason they're there. They're not there because they need to collect into. So what that tells us about the nature of God is that he cares deeply about the most marginalized, about the most abused, about the most damaged, the most hurt, the most abandoned. He cares enough that he would put a nation of a million people on pause, send two guys into the darkest possible environment you can imagine to engage this woman and say, there is a God who's coming to save you. There's hope. It's a powerful moment in redemptive history. So then, if she brings nothing to the table, she brings nothing at all in her works or in her identity. She's an Amorite prostitute about as bad of a hand as you could ever be dealt in the history of humanity. Consider another rescue mission. The woman in John 4. Jesus is passing from north to south, or south to north, check my work on that, but he's passing this way, and he goes out of his way into Samaria, and it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria to meet the woman at the well, and when Jesus meets the woman at the well, think about this, he shatters three barriers there, he shatters a, gen a gender barrier, 
because rabbinical authority, men did not speak to women in public, so he crushes that barrier. He says, I'm bigger than that. He, he crushes a racial barrier because the Samaritans were the objects of, the, they were the, the objects as a nation of racism from both the Romans and the Jews. So he crushes racial barriers, he tears down gender barriers, and he destroys cultural and social barriers because he drinks from her cup. It's like, we don't, we don't have anything that, like, there's no, that doesn't work for us. Like, I mean, some of you get grossed out if your food touches and you would never think of drinking after somebody else, right? But in terms of, like, someone being seen as unclean, a, a Jewish rabbi would never speak to a woman, definitely not a Samaritan woman, and definitely would not drink from her water vessel. Jesus destroys social barriers so that he can then bring her to this point where he says, okay, this is beautiful, ladies. Jesus is able to look her in the eyes after those barriers have been torn down, and now she's beginning to trust. There's something different about this encounter with this man. And he says, yeah, of course you don't, you're not married you're living with a man you had five husbands which tells us listen in both of these ladies stories we have to understand that in in near eastern ancient context women had no rights they were the objects of sexual abuse they were passed from man to man often and so for her to have gone through five marriages something was terribly wrong from the beginning in terms of how she was abused and mishandled why did jesus go to samaria to go save this woman he goes to save this lady because he cares about the most marginalized. He cares about the most damaged. He cares about the most hurt among us. Let's go back to Rahab. Verse 7, uh, when she, she, she sends these men um, into hiding because uh, she's there. These guys show up. She's interacting with them. And she says, uh, well, here, go, let's, let, let me bring you up here and you can hide here. She could have turned them over, by the way, for a great prize. If she, you know how wealthy she'd have been or how maybe, maybe what kind of reward there could have been had if she'd have said, um, here, king, these guys are here, and, and she turns them in. Why didn't she do that? It's because God was saving her. When God is saving a person, your value system changes. What matters to you changes. You no longer care about the things you used to care about. You're no longer anecdotally trying to solve the problems of your inner soul. You're looking now outside of yourself. So she's looking outside of herself. She's looking outside of her circumstances. She's looking outside of the walls of Jericho. She's not interested in whatever the king can offer her. She's not interested in a reward. She is a lowdown, dirty and unclean, outcast, used and abused prostitute who has known nothing but a life of abuse and brokenness. And for the first time, she's beginning to understand she has value. She has value in the eyes of God. She may have sought that life out, but more than likely, she wasn't hardened by her sin, but she's been broken, hardened, and damaged by the sin of others. There's two things that we can understand in the cultural context that are, that are important in understanding Rahab. The first one is, she was a victim of horrible circumstance. She's a victim of horrible circumstance. She did, I, I guarantee you, she did nothing to choose this path for herself. She's a victim of circumstance. Many of you, it's a heavy message, ladies. This is going to get real heavy right here. 400 ladies in a room, at least 100 of you, at some point in your life have been the victim of horrible circumstance. Abuse as a little girl by someone you should have trusted. Abuse physically, emotionally, sexually. 
Same maybe in a marriage or a relationship or a cycle of relationships. And you're a victim of circumstance. And what you wrestle with is, but I could have stopped it or it wasn't, I, I could have done something. I could, and, 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 and you get caught up in this cycle of what could I have done differently? Sometimes you have to come to the reality that circumstance overwhelmed you and you were left victimized. Okay, so that's okay. We can embrace being a victim. Now, we don't celebrate victimhood. We embrace that we were victims at one point, recognizing that the gospel says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, and that in Christ we overwhelmingly conquer. The second thing we learn about her is that she's a victim, but she's a survivor. She's a survivor. What, what determination do you have to put yourself into this life for the sole purpose of we see in, the, in her conversation that she wants to provide for the well-being of her whole family? We don't know some of the details that are left out. Maybe her line of work supports the entire family, including her parents, her, 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 her children, certainly. She's a victim, and she's a survivor. Which brings us to three lies that I want you to understand that people believe about God's saving power. Three lies that Rahab, as a victim and a survivor, crushes in her actions when it comes to understanding the saving power of God. The first one is this. Some people believe that you can sin enough that God won't forgive you. She crushes that lie. She crushes it. There's a girl, we'll call her Tara, who came to camp years ago under a fake identity with literally FBI agent brings her, her, her uh, the person who was her full-time counselor, walks through the week of camp with her. She had been at age 11, groomed by a local pimp in a housing project in Atlanta, and then trafficked from age 12 to 15. She had been with over 1,000 men from 12 to 15, prostituted out between the hours of 3 and 6 after school in a cheap motel. And she shows up, shows up at camp under an alias. You know, meet the FBI agent that's in charge. You know, like, it's intense. And I remember praying for her feeling the weight of no, and every time I'm speaking that she's in the room, and Little and I are praying for her, and there was a point in the week where she wrestled through, we, we, we had a sit down, she, she sought us out, we sat down, we're having a conversation with her, and she said, I'm struggling with the fact that I now desire that lifestyle, because what sin does is it twists and confuses your value system. And so victims of abuse will often then find value in the source of what the original abuse was. So the thing that you found so grotesque and broken becomes your value system and your identity. And so one of the hurdles that Tara had to come through in that conversation is the gospel is bigger than all of that and you've not done enough to negate the power of the blood of Jesus. So Rahab's teaching us that. It's a misconception People might say that you can sin enough that God won't forgive you. By the way, Tara came to saving faith in Jesus. It's a wonderful story. Number two, others will say that you have, you have to get your act together before God can do anything with you. Ah, I've got to clean it up. You know, like, ah, I'm going to get serious about my faith at some point. I hear this with men a lot. I've got to get my stuff together, get, get some stuff straightened out. Listen, you, we bring nothing in our hands to the cross of Christ. We, we offer nothing. And last is the lie that my brokenness defines me. It is my identity. It holds me in its grip and sway. 
My brokenness defines me. It is my identity. It holds me in its grip and sway. Those are all lies. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, that it was while we were dead in our sin that Christ died for us and that he saves us. So how do we overcome those lies? Let's consider uh, Rahab's confession. Now, let me, this is, this is where we're going to land the ship here. Uh, and then we'll do the conclusion. So Rahab's confession <clears throat> is in verses 8 through 13. Let me tell you something. When we hear the word confession, in the Christian context, we tend to think of it as um, admitting, like admitting something I've done wrong, an admission of wrongdoing. So we think of confession of sin. But confession runs, runs much richer than that in Scripture. Confession is, uh, is a reference to an, uh, me speaking and recognizing my sin, but also in that same vein, recognizing the saving power of God. So con- in other words, confession could be something like, before the Lord, I am a sinner, and I confess that, but also before the Lord saying, you are almighty God, and I confess that. So a prayer of confession is not just a prayer of, admitting everything I've done wrong and asking Jesus to forgive me. It's acknowledging my sin and recognizing that he has both the authority and power to forgive it and the compassion to do so. So he has the authority to cover my sin in the blood of Jesus because he's God and he's sinless and he's righteous, but he also has the mercy and the compassion to extend that grace to me. That's confession. So confession is a recognition of my sin and a recognition of his righteousness. So let's go to verse 10. The first thing that she confesses in Rahab's confession is, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. So she recognizes, number one, the Lord's power and might. The Lord's power and might. If you're, if you're someone who still wrestles with the gravity of abuse that was brought on you at a younger age or even more recently, begin by recognizing the Lord's power and might. And that may be hard to work through because that's precisely the struggle you have is then why didn't he rescue me from this situation? But as we continue to confess truth, there's power even in the confession because we move in Rahab's confession from this recognition of God's power and might to look in verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is a God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. The second thing that she confesses is the Lord's glory and majesty. So we move from I'm recognizing the power and the might of God But if I get stuck there, I'll get stuck on the question, why doesn't he fix what is broken in every aspect of life? Why do I still deal with repercussions of sin, that that harm that was done to me? Well, when we move out of that confession and into a confession of his glory and majesty, we begin to open our minds and our hearts to a bigger picture, which is that we serve a God who is bigger than our brokenness. We serve a God who is not controlled or contained in time and space. We serve a God who is eternal, and in his majesty and glory, he's bringing about good even in the midst of brokenness. And that in the end, good will come out of all things and justice will prevail. In verse 12, the third thing she confesses, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. She confesses the Lord's mercy and salvation. See, when we recognize the power and might of God, then we recognize the glory and majesty of God. We're left with no response but to throw ourselves at the feet of his mercy. Cry out to God for healing. Cry out to God for peace. 
cry out to God for clarity of thought and an understanding of who I am. So her confession is a confession of salvation. And in her confession, it's critical that we see both sides of the character and nature of God. He is both loving and merciful. He is long-suffering. But the value and beauty of this is that he is just and righteous and powerful. A fear of the Lord drives us into the mercy of the Lord. And Rahab takes action because James tells us that faith without works is dead. And so her action is even talked about by James in, in, in his letter. He tells us that faith without works is dead. And he says in James 2.25, the Bible says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So we see that it is her verbal vocal confession of the majesty of God and the salvation that he provides and a plea for the mercy of God to be poured out in her life. So it's a confession of who he is and a recognition and confession of who she is. And when those two things come together under that, she then is moved to action. The whole story is full of action. She's a woman who is acting on her faith. And James says we see her salvation in the fact that she acts on what God has done. Consider three things that she did in taking action. First, she risked her own life and the lives of her family. It's a huge risk that she takes. And, and think of this, ladies. It's not just she risks her own life, because every woman in here who's a mother would say, well, I would gladly lay my life down for my child. Gladly. Like, literally, it's not, it's not just words to say I would do that with joy. You know, like you would gladly. The joy would be to sacrifice so that your child might live. But she risked her life and the lives of her family. If she is found out, it's not just what they will do to her. It's what they will do to her children and her siblings and her parents. But her faith is greater than a paralyzing fear. And so her faith drives her to action. Number two, she repudiated her own past and her own people, namely the Ammonites. She walked away from all that she had known. She repudiated it. And number three, she identified with God's people. She received total and full inclusion into the family of God and into his people. How do we know that? Well, you go to the end of the story. A couple chapters later, she's rescued. It's pretty cool. Archaeologists have, archaeologists have done three excavations of Jericho. The first one, first one or two were like in the late 1800s. And then the others were like in the, I think there was one in the 1920s, one in like the 1950s. And what they found, this is fascinating, is that there were actually, it was a double wall system. So the city was very guarded and protected. So there's two walls around the city. That outside wall, everything's torn down, but there is one piece of that wall that in 1954 is still standing. And there's a window and what used to be a room midway up in that wall. And fascinating. That's, I was driving back from Layla and I were coming back from soccer game the other day and she's, she and I are just talking and she's like talking about conversations she's having with girls on her soccer team. She's a freshman and she's playing with varsity girls in basketball and soccer and that's hard. You're young, they're older, there's a pressure. And she said, she said I, I want them to understand. They ask hard questions about the Bible but they're not willing to seek out the answers. So she's like, well, if God's this and what about this and why is the Bible this and why is it that? If we will study, one thing that we can be confident of, ladies, is that the word of God will always show itself to be true. When archaeologists three, 4,000 years later find the remnants of Rahab's room, probably, and by the way, it's facing in the direction of the wilderness that the two guys hid in. That's pretty, I'm, that's pretty cool if you're into that kind of thing. Like, 
God's word proving to be true, right? So how does so it go down? Well, they come in, the walls fall, they rescue her. She's Gentile. She's Ammonite, Amorite, Ammonite, Amorite. I get those two confused. And she's a prostitute. And she's Jesus' grandmama. You think Jesus is scared of your garbage? <laughs> his grandma was a prostitute. His mama was called a prostitute. You know, like, like there's so much gritty reality in the story. A lot of you, I've been so blessed even this morning to have several of you say that you listen to the podcast, which is so great because you sit there and talk to a microphone by yourself with a, like, I wonder if anybody's going to listen to this, you know? But I did this series, remember this, called Jesus Crazy Grandmas. Those ladies were crazy. It's wonderful that this is what he does is he comes not through the halls and annals of pristine rulers and kings and kingdoms. He comes as the Jewish peasant king who will conquer the world through acts of mercy and justice. He not only gives her hope and salvation, but he brings her into his very lineage. I'd like to wrap it up by reading from James Montgomery Boyce's good commentary on the book of Joshua. For we are Rahab. If we truly understand her story, we were not at all part of the family of God or within the scope of what God is doing in a saving way in human history. What is worse, we were part of a corrupt, degenerate society in which we had each our own reprehensible sins. But God set his hand on us. He made his great saving acts in history known to us and then brought us into contact with his messengers and representatives. He called forth faith in us, faith by which through his grace we also laid our lives on the line. In a spiritual sense, we were called to repudiate our own people and identity with God's people and into identity with God's people. As a sign of that, the blood of Christ, like a scarlet cord, was spread over our homes and our lives. And now... Now we live in an alien land between the moment of our commitment of faith and the moment of the final judgment, which will be the time of our full de deliverance. Ladies, those of you that still carry the pain of abuse and brokenness, you can know this, that if you can m see what Rahab sees, then you can hold to the hope that Rahab has now realized, which is that Jesus will one day bring to justice that which deserves justice. There is an end to all of it. It's wonderful to know that. In this important interim, we are to stand alone for God as Rahab did. We are to be God's people in opposition to the surrounding godless culture. What if you've not done this? Then your state is the same as that of the citizens of Jericho. You look at the surrounding walls of your great secular city and you say to yourself, surely I'm safe here. The walls are strong. The city has stood for many thousands of years, but inside your heart is failing you for fear. And you know that a day of certain reckoning and judgment is approaching. Why shouldn't you be like Rahab? She had nothing but a verbal report of the mighty acts of Jehovah. And even that was selective. It was a limited report. You have the law and the prophets and the Psalms. You have the gospel. You have the law that condemns you for your sin and the gospel that shows you the solution to your sin through the death and outpoured blood of Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of grace and love. Why shouldn't you live any longer under God's just wrath and condemnation? Why shouldn't you believe in Christ? Turn from your sinful past. Take your place with God's people, as Rahab did. 
she becomes the like great grandmother of King David. That's pretty cool too, because he's such a powerful figure. Okay, now I'm going to step outside of exegetical integrity, which means I'm going to I'm going to give you a hypothesis that I have on the story that as ladies you should absolutely love. Men are probably like, eh, whatever. As ladies, you should eat this up. I hope and I kind of believe that the man she marries, his name is Salmon. I think he was one of the two spies. Huh? That'd be cool, wouldn't it? But let's think about him for a minute. Because in the story, we see God, we see Jesus throughout Scripture. When, when, when you think of the scarlet thread, there's, in every story in Scripture, there's something that points us to the gospel. And in this story, this man who is unnamed in this context, we read about him a few generations later in the story of Ruth, who is another fascinating story. This family kept doing this. Dragging broken, torn up, devastated women straight into the lineage of Christ. And years later, Salmon is named as her husband. And he's such a picture of Jesus because he married a Canaanite prostitute and said, I don't care. How will I take what Christ has called clean and make it unclean? How will I judge what Christ has justified as broken and sinful? Christ, the Bible says in Romans 3, is both just and the justifier of our sin. Our righteousness rests in what he has done. That is your identity. Everything else is going to be taken care of. Press into that hope and that truth. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.